Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. As a sibling, a spouse, or a friend? <laughs> Fairly comprehensive scope, right? You know that there are things you can say about that person that nobody else can, right? I can say things about my sister Allison that if you say about her, we're going to fight, right? The negatives about that loved one, we can express, but if your friend starts talking about them, it's, it's, it's on, right? My, my roommate Manuel from seminary has plenty of flaws that I find, but you better not talk about them. I think church is the same way. I think our church is the absolute same way, right? It's ours. It's special to us. We see her flaws. Nobody else needs to talk about them. They can only talk about the good stuff. I think the Methodist church is the same way. Uh, I was talking in the 8.30 service. We get a little more interactive in the first service. Uh, I asked them, what is the uh, greatest thing about the Methodist church? And they had lots of answers. Uh, but first, I, I told them what I thought were some of the negatives. We fight all the time. This denomination's been fighting since it started. We have a huge bureaucracy. We have charge conferences, district conferences, jurisdictional conferences, annual conferences, general conferences. We got a lot of buildings sitting there doing not much. We got a building in Washington, D.C. that could feed the homeless all over the land if we just sold that one building. We got plenty of problems as a denomination, and they're the things that get in the news because other people start talking about us. They don't talk about the good stuff, do they? They need to shut up about the bad stuff and talk about the good stuff. <laughs> this morning in the 8.30 service, we heard about people who left a different church to go to the Methodist church and felt welcome finally. People celebrated that in the Methodist church, we have a faith formation that is bigger than just coming to worship, that we do Sunday school, we do small groups, we do studies in order to, to kind of develop us. Uh, we heard somebody say that they love that our communion table is open to anybody. You show up here, we don't care who you are or what you are, come and take communion. That was their answers to what's the best thing about Methodism. And I told them they were all wrong. <laughs> I think the best thing about Methodism is that we start everything from a posture of grace. I think, uh, I think every other denomination starts from mercy. We're sinners and God didn't want us to send us to hell, so Jesus came and died for us. We start from grace, that God created us in God's image, that God loved us so much that despite our sin, his son took on flesh in order that we might have life and life eternal. We celebrate that at every turn, God's grace is available to us, whether it's uh, before we ever recognize his presence in what we call provenient grace, whether it's at this moment where we are compelled and captivated in this, this justifying, saving grace, or really this uh, hallmark of, Christi of, of Methodism, sanctifying grace, holiness. Other denominations have a doctrine of sanctification, but they think it happens out there later, 
when we go to heaven or heaven comes to earth or new creation, however you want to talk about then, we believe it happens now, that God's grace pours out in our lives and we can become holy people now. CNN isn't talking about sanctification, is it? It's not talking about grace. It's talking about the mess that we should keep as family business. Grace is the greatest gift of Methodism to the world, and especially this idea of Christian perfection, sanctifying grace. People ask, you know, with, with all the chaos occasionally in the church, why don't I go to some other denomination because there is no denomination that believes in grace the way we do and that believes that we can be justified, sanctified, and set anew right now. Jesus is preaching a Methodist sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, friends. This isn't a Presbyterian sermon. It isn't an Episcopalian or Lutheran sermon. It's a Methodist sermon. He's already told them all, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your life. They have been captivated and compelled by him. They've seen him performing miracles. They are Jesus' followers. So he goes up on this mountain and he starts preaching to the insiders. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. He's laying out, blessed is everybody, y'all. All these folks who've been captivated and compelled are going to find themselves in this list somewhere. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he invites them to be more righteous than the Pharisees. He's buttered them up with your blessed and your salt and your light. And then he tells them to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Last week we established that uh, this happens only when God creates that desire in our heart and then when God enables it to happen. That God can create in us a desire to be righteous, to be holy, and enable us to do it. We didn't actually talk about what it looked like to be sanctified, what it meant to say, yes, we believe we're going on to perfection. We said we'd save that for this week. So, of course, we have this passage that Brian read for us today. A passage that I think is regularly misused and abused and mistreated by others because they don't know what it means to be a people of grace. It's a passage full of behaviors contrasted with pictures of what a heart could look like. It's a picture of what we do by willpower versus what we do when Jesus transforms our heart through his grace being poured out. Before we dive into the text, I want to go ahead and say that this uh, is not a hierarchy of sins in any way. Instead, it's this expansive list that over time shows that each one of us is somewhere in this list. You might not have committed murder, but you absolutely have been angry. You might not have committed adultery, but you have probably not kept your word. And then it goes on to show that if we get to the heart of the issue, we're guilty at all these levels. Jesus invites his hearers to see themselves at every turn as a chance to be transformed by God. And he just jumps right on in. You've heard it said uh, to those who live long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be put in danger of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. He goes on to talk about if you say your brother's an idiot or you're stupid or you find out that you have an issue with him, to go solve it before you even come to church. 
he sets up this contrast, this contrast between murder and anger. The contrast is between the behavior and the Christian virtue of temperance. Uh, most of us have heard temperance in terms of abstaining from alcohol. Uh, but really, it's a broader heart condition that's marked, even had to look this one up, by forgiveness, humility, prudence, and self-regulation. You can begin to see how that plays into avoiding anger, right? If you are a prudent person, if you're able to self-regulate, if you uh, embrace temperance, then you can begin to see past that person who's wronged you. You can be nice and not angry for a while on your own willpower, but eventually it's going to fall apart, right? Um, I've, I've heard some of you tell me stories about, I had a good week, but I got mad at this person for this thing. We try to work out our own not being angry. Uh, virtue is when our behavior comes out of our character instead of us coming out of willpower. Uh, virtue is when it, uh, our behavior comes out of our character, not out of our willpower. It's one thing not to murder or not to be angry because we've worked at it. It's another thing to let the Spirit transform us so that we are no longer angry, right? Uh, the world is in desperate need of temperance, and so is our denomination. If you look at the news or you look at uh, anything about Methodism, uh, we're all in need of some temperance, some self-regulation, some ability to, uh, to use good judgment to see others as created in God's image. You've heard what it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out or throw it away. It's better to lose part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say if you lust, you've already committed adultery. He's getting at this behavior that drives at the virtue of purity. We can uh, avoid behaviors for a while on the basis of willpower. But when our hearts are transformed, we begin to embrace purity and see people as fully created in the image of God and not as objects. The world is desperately in need of purity, and so is the church. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This isn't really about divorce at all. It's about fidelity, honoring the vows we've made. What does it mean to honor that person that you have said, I do to? We make vows at weddings, we make vows at ordinations, we make them when we join the church. What does it mean to be faithful and, uh, and to maintain fidelity to those vows? The world desperately needs some people who embrace fidelity and so does our church. Again, you've heard it said uh, that to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by the earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair black or white. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The behavior of vow making 
versus the virtue of truth-telling. A few years ago, we preached on the seven deadly sins, and I got to preach on truth-telling and was shocked by how this theme of, of truth runs through Scripture. It's one of the primary descriptors of God in the Old Testament is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have to look far to see that the world is desperately in need of truth-telling, and so is the church. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you must not oppose people who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn your left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go with them one mile, go too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. My Bible says it's the law of retaliation. Uh, in the ancient Near East, if someone poked your eye out, you cut their head off. In the Old Testament, they refined it to if they cut your eye out, you cut their eye out. And Jesus reframes it to if they cut your eye out, turn the other. If they slap you, turn your other cheek. He's, in, he's inviting us to the virtue of peacemaking. Uh, this of all these uh, behaviors versus virtues, I think has been misused. Uh, you regularly hear this passage used as stay in a situation, uh, turn the other cheek. Friends, if you're in a situation where someone is abusive to you, is uh, not caring for you, that is not what this passage is about. This passage is not staying somewhere that you're being harmed. Sometimes peacemaking looks like walking away. I think everybody, you need to hear that this passage does not look like staying to be harmed. It looks like peacemaking, which can often be walking away. You don't have to look very far at all in the news or in our church to see that this world is desperately in need of peacemaking. You've heard it, that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you lo love only those you love, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. Love that is not complete is not love, is it? It's one thing to say, I love y'all because you're my church, but I hate all those people on Facebook. I love all those people who are the same political party as me, but I hate all those other people. I love all those people who think this, uh, but I hate all those people who think that. This one's starting to feel awfully close to home for a lot of us, right? Uh, if you couldn't have identified with other ones, this one starts to feel fresh. And God says... Love everyone. I love the way the CEB ends it. Uh, your father is complete in love, so you be complete. Most other translations say, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is a Methodist sermon being preached by Jesus up on the mountain. It's the invitation to the virtue of love. Love is the one that's going to endure. Love is, it is the center of the Bible.
At every turn, God's character is love, and we're invited to love. It's, it's at the very essence of even who God is in Trinitarian uh, essence, that God is love. We can love based on our willpower for a while. But y'all know it breaks down really fast. But if we allow God to transform our heart, we can actually love completely. The world desperately needs some people whose hearts have been transformed that we embody the virtue of love and so does the Methodist church. If we, be, if we move beyond seeing this as a list of behaviors and even more extreme versions of understanding those behaviors to seeing it as a list of virtues that God can transform us into embodying, it becomes our sermon. And it becomes the sermon I needed to hear my whole life. Growing up, I've told y'all before, I heard that uh, we needed to behave well so we didn't go to hell. We had to every day do the right things implied through our willpower to avoid going to hell. Later in life, uh, my mentor uh, helped me see that that was legalism, that was wrong, and it would never work. So you just got to love God and love your neighbor. That's absolutely true, right, Tom? You got to love God and love your neighbor. But if you don't move beyond that, it becomes this uh, vapor of Christianity. If you don't understand what it actually means to love God and love neighbor. Standing somewhere between those two is a sanctified heart where God's spirit has entered in and began to transform our hearts so we no longer try to live out of our behavior but live out of virtue, where our actions are reflective of who and what our hearts have become. I'm uh, listening to audiobook by Father Gregory Boyle. He runs Homeboy Industries out in Los Angeles. It's the largest gang intervention program in the world. Um, he is fascinating, and his central premise is understanding the kinship of all believers. And he reflects on this through the life of these gang members in L.A. and how regularly they show him what it means uh, to be a holy people. He was talking about uh, a time he was at a prison visiting one of the members, and uh, as, as they're kind of hanging out, a guard is leaving, and the prisoner says to the guard, hey, hey, what time is it? And the guard says, well, it's a quarter past time for you to get a watch. All the other gang members around there see this happen, right? This is a shame-evoking moment for this prisoner. He has just been put down by this guard, been offended, and they all look to him. What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do? And he just lets him walk away. Why did you let him go? Why didn't you let him have it? What if he got upset? What if he got angry and went home and, and beat his wife or his kids? Now, there's a fine line when I heard that story because uh, we, we're not set up to endure being treated poorly. But I love that his heart was already thinking, what does this do to this man if I respond negatively? What does it do to his family? As I heard the story, I thought, oh, that my heart might be a little more like that where my first reaction is, what does this mean for them it's been a fascinating story to, to reflect on as we've been studying this idea of being sanctified, of being made holy. What would the world look like if we all invited God to transform our hearts, to help us become virtuous people whose behavior comes out of our character, not out of willpower? Where we began to see others as fully human, to see them as created in the image of God, 
I think the 40509 would look dramatically different. I think the Methodist church would look dramatically different. It's our gift to the world, friends. It's why we ask our pastors, do you think you're moving on to perfection and do you expect to be made perfect in this life? It's why we as a church have as our vision uh, that we are going to reform the nation, particularly the church, through the spread of scriptural holiness across the land. That's a whole bunch of words, but it's saying we believe this stuff. That we think if we take seriously being made holy, being sanctified, that the world will be reformed and look different. This church that you have made your home, that many of you have vowed membership vows to, this place where we've uh, surrounded our kids with a community of love and forgiveness, this place where it is messy and full of a bunch of folks on their journey, the world looks different because of you. And think how different it can continue to look because of you. I keep coming back to last week's text from Philippians, and, and the chief invitation is to invite God to create that desire in us and to enable it to happen. I'm getting a taste of what it means to be sanctified. I'm finally beginning to get a sense of what holy life looks like. And I want it to happen faster. My chief frustration now is that day after day I'm reminded of how not sanctified I am. That is my prayer. And it's why I turn to the means of grace every day. It's why I pray. It's why I read scripture. It's why we fast. It's why we come together as, communion for, as a community for worship. It's why we come to the table so regularly. Because it's this grace, this gift to the world that enables us to be moved forward in sanctification, to become people who are perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to be people who are complete in love. We have a lot of great things in Methodism. UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, is one of the greatest things ever. We are the first people on the ground in disasters, and usually we stay there forever. We got people still in Haiti from the earthquake years ago. We were the first in Japan. We've got UMCOR people at the border. It is incredible. We have uh, pushed this, agenda, this uh, effort called uh, Imagine, uh, Imagine No Malaria, Nothing But Nets, where we literally are transforming this, the landscape of Africa through malaria prevention. And these don't hold a candle to the idea that we can be made holy. The world can be transformed as God transforms us. As your pastor, that's my prayer for you, that God creates in you a desire to be made holy and that you say yes, and he does it for you. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we, uh, we acknowledge your goodness and your graciousness. We acknowledge that uh, you are the one who desires to work in and through us and that often we get in your way. Create in us the desire to be made holy and then do it. Reveal to us places where we have gotten in your way and tell us how to move them out of the way. Create in our hearts a desire to come and meet you in the means of grace that we might be filled and transformed and then, Lord, do it. Transform us in a way that we begin to transform the world, that you, through your spirit, change the very nature of humanity because of what you've done here. Lord, move us from willpower to transformation. May the world know the goodness that is the, method, that is the Methodist gift to the world because of what you do in and through us. Lord, 
Make us a people of temperance, people of purity, of fidelity, people who practice truth-telling, people who are peacemakers, and people who are complete in love. Help us see what the world might look like. We pray this with boldness because we've seen you move before, we've experienced your grace before, and we know that you are good. So we pray it with confidence. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.